We are reading a new book today, and it is Fanny Crosby's Memories of 80 Years, and it is by Frances Jane Crosby, otherwise known as Mrs. Alexander Van Alstyne. It is the story of her life told by herself. It is her ancestry, childhood, womanhood, friendships, incidents, and history of her songs and hymns. And I think you're going to really enjoy this book. She is one of the characters that I do portray as a 95-year-old woman. Dedication. Go, little book, with many a prayer. Go on thy pinions, light as air. The story and life portray of her who sends thee forth today. Go, little book, God's goodness tell, whose praise her soul enraptured sings, who gave the harp she loved so well, and in her childhood tuned the strings. Go, little book, her years recall, with countless friends so richly bless. She murmurs not where'er befall but fills the power of perfect rest. Gold little book, should some lone heart forget thee one throb of pain, shouldst thou but play this humble part, thy author has not toiled in vain. Introductory Statement For those friends and acquaintances who have expressed a wish to read the complete story of my life, from my childhood to the present time, I have undertaken the writing of this book by including even some incidents that, in themselves, may seem trivial, but I have tried to make this account a full and accurate autobiography. In modesty, however, I have also desired to render my story as simply as possible. In fact, to give a vivid picture of my work, my opinions, and my aspirations, not only as a teacher, but also as a writer of sacred songs. And if I have spoken with a frankness that may seem akin to egotism, I hope that I may be pardoned, for I am fully aware of the immense debt I owe to those numberless friends, only a few of whom I have been able to mention, and especially to that dear friend of us all who is our light in life. Throughout the pages which follow, I have availed myself of the kind assistance of several persons. I desire to acknowledge here, especially the services of Biglow and Main Company, for permission to make a few quotations from my copyrighted poems to J.L.B. Sunderland for the use of a number of articles that originally appeared in the Albany Railroader, to I. Allen Sankey, Hubert P. Maine, Dr. William H. Doan, and Mrs. Mary Upton Courier, for corrections, suggestions, and stories of the hymns, to my sister Mrs. Carrie W. Ryder, for the single-hearted devotion for which she has aided me in every way she could to make this story of mine all that a loving sister would wish it to be. To my friend, Mrs. Eva G. Cleveland, who has warmly seconded my sister's efforts, and to my cousin, William Losey, for the pictures of my early home and its surroundings. In the work of compiling, copying, and arranging this book, I am indebted to the valuable services of H. Aldebert White, like my old physician, Dr. J. W. G. Clements, through whose generous efforts my first book of poems was issued. He has sacrificed every other consideration and patiently devoted himself to my interest. This he has done, however, as a gift of friendship, and I realize that this book never would have been possible without his assistance. But if this little volume shall be the means of transmitting sunshine into any life, I am sure that all those who have so generously given their aid will feel abundantly rewarded. For myself... It is a rare privilege and a pleasure to twine the blossoms I have been gathering in the garden of memory along the journey of life 
into a wreath which will be forever a token of fellowship and goodwill. Chapter 1. Flowers That Never Fade Many of the flowers I planted in the garden of memory during the happy childhood are still blooming sweet and fair after a lapse of more than 80 years. Those that were somewhat faded because they have not recently been watered and those which have been crushed in the press of a long, busy life, I will try to revive until I have finished the life story that I am about to tell. Amid giant rocks and hills majestic, sunny glade and fertile plain, as one of my own poems described the surroundings among which I was reared, these blossoms of expectant youth, some of them frail promises of future harvest, were gathered in a good old town of southeast Putnam County, New York. In that region, the traveler, perhaps to a greater degree than the inhabitant, remembers the county as one of the most wonderful wildness and grandeur. The scenery is sublime because natural and more majestic than any handiwork designed by man. During the summer months, the neighboring hills are studded with great masses of foliage, and this here and there is touched with small masses of gold and brown, and in winter the small landscape is covered over with a spread of virgin snow. These gracious gifts of natural scenery left their own indelible imprint upon my mind. For although I was deprived of sight at the age of six weeks, my imagination was still receptive to all the influences around me, and the surrounding country, in its native beauty, was real enough for me, and one sense was as real to my mind as to the minds of my little companions, at least the inner meaning of all the objects that they could see with their physical vision. To my mental sight, my imagination was made somewhat more plain than may be supposed. Near the humble cottage in which I lived for the first few years of my childhood ran a tiny brook, one of the branches of the Crenton River, and the music of its waters were so sweet in my ears that I fancied it was not to be surpassed by any of the grand melodies of the great music beyond our little valley. During pleasant summer days, I used to sit on a large rock over which a great vine and an apple tree clasped hands to make a bower fit indeed for any race of fairies, however ethereal in its taste. The voices of nature enchanted me, but they all spoke a familiar language. Sometimes it was a liquid note of a solitary songster at the eventide in the distant woods, or the industrious hum of a bee at noon when every creature but himself and the locusts were sleeping in the shade, while the piping of a cricket at night was drawing on. And how could I help thinking, now and then, that the fairies themselves were bringing messages directly to me? In childhood, the tender language of a heart is the only familiar speech, and imagination the only artist of the beautiful that seems to satisfy the childish soul. In these later years, therefore, I sometimes drink from the springs whose waters were once so cool and inspiring, and then I often think that I have indeed discovered the fountain of perpetual youth, flowing from the heart of nature. Of the family of my father, John Crosby, we have unfortunately little record, and of him I have no recollection, for he died before I was twelve months old. My mother came of a very hardy race, earnest and devout people, noted for their longevity, and she herself lived till past 91, and her great-grandmother attained the goodly age of 103 years, and after she was 82, she rode from Putnam County, New York, to Cape Cod, and back again, through the half-cleared wilderness. 
My mother's maiden name was also Crosby, and her line traces back to Simon and Anne Crosby, who came to Boston in 1635 and settled across the Charles River three miles from town. Simon Crosby was one of the founders of Harvard College, and his son, Thomas Crosby, graduated from that institution in 1653. My great-grandfather, Isaac Crosby, was noted for his wit. While in the Revolutionary War, wishing a furlough that he might visit his home to see a child born during his absence. He told his general that he had 19 children at home and had never seen one of them. Of course, the request was granted. He was the son of Eliezer Crosby and Patience Freeman, the granddaughter of Elder William Brewster, and through Zachariah Paddock, another ancestor on my mother's side, who also descended from Thomas Prince and Major John Freeman. When General Warren was killed at Bunker Hill, it was Crosby, I was told, who caught up the flag as it fell from his hands. Enoch Crosby, the spy of the Revolution, was a cousin of my grandfather's, and I've always read with much interest the account of him, given by Cooper in his novel, The Spy, where he passes under the name of Harvey Birch. This daring, brave patriot sleeps near one of the charming little lakes in Putnam County, not many miles from my own birthplace. My grandmother was a woman of exemplary piety, and from her I learned many useful and abiding lessons. She was a firm believer in prayer, and when I was very young, taught me to believe that our Father in Heaven will always give us whatever is for our good, and therefore that we should be careful not to ask Him anything that is not consistent with His holy will. At evening time, she used to call me to her dear old rocking chair, and then we would kneel down together and repeat some simple petition. Many years afterwards, when Grandmother had departed from earth and that rocking chair had passed into other hands, in a grateful memory I wrote a poem entitled, Grandma's Rocking Chair. There are forms that flit before me, there are tones I yet recall, but the voice of gentle Grandma I remember best of all. In her loving arms she held me, and beneath her patient care, I was born away to dreamland in her dear old rocking chair. She was always kind, though firm, and never punished me for ordinary offenses. On the contrary, she would talk to me very gently, and in this way she would convince me of my fault and bring me into a state of real, heartfelt penitence. My playmates always knew that I was interested in nearly every kind of childish mischief, and they were not in the least hesitant about inviting me to engage in any of their most daring exploits. On one occasion, Grandmother slapped my hands for some breach of good behavior. This grieved me greatly, and at once bitter resentment sprang up in my heart. Thinking to soothe myself, a little companion called me out to play with him. But as I went, something within me said, Yes, I will play with you, but I will hurt you, for my Grandma has hurt me. So I threw a rock at him, but I missed my aim and the cloud soon passed, and all was sunny again. Fifty years later, to my greatest surprise, when I was lecturing in Yonkers, New York, a man whispered in my ear, Don't you remember David Kirncham, your early playmate? Certainly I remembered him, and we had a good laugh over that incident that I had just related, and I am happy to say, over many others of more pleasing character. When I was three years of age, Mother moved to North Salem in the neighboring Westchester County where we remained five years among a number of delightful Quaker families who taught me to use what they call the plain language or the common speech of friends. One good man and I became constant companions, and often when he was going to the mill, he found me a very willing passenger 
and sometimes an uninvited guest. But whenever I persisted in going, he generally gave way after the first feeble resistance. No, thee aren't going with me, he would say, and I as surely replied, David, I tell thee I am going to mill with thee. Well, get thy bonnet and come along. When I had exhausted all the methods of entertainment at my commands, Mother came to me and said, I think I have found something that will please you. Then she placed in my arms a tiny lamb that had lost his mother, and the little orphan at once was received into the warmth of my affections. Through the fields and meadows we romped when the days were warm, and occasionally I fell asleep under a great oak tree with my pet by my side. But he soon grew into a strange creature, quite unlike the gentle lamb that I had first known, for he used to throw me to the ground and tear my dress and make me cry. For a time I forgave him, but at last he disappeared, and not many days thereafter the family had mutton for dinner. My pet had not returned, and I knew at once what had become of him. So I refused to eat the meat that day and slipped off into a corner so as not to betray the tears that I could not restrain. For many weeks I wore mourning in my heart, and among those who vainly tried to comfort me was Daniel Drew, who offered to replace my pet from the flocks that he drove by our doors. Though much to the surprise of all my friends, I declined his gift. I reasoned, Why should I again be deprived of a dear pet? I will have none. Then there will be no chance of it. The old Quaker church still stands about as it did when we worshipped there, and the remembrance of those kind Westchester people is one of my fadeless flowers. I had a cousin who was fond of writing comic poetry. In our neighborhood there lived an old lady named Mary Barber, who was a trouble wherever she went. One time she came to his father's house to remain over Sunday and asked that he write for her a verse of poetry. At first he declined, but when she persisted a long time, he gave her the following. Aunt Mary Barber also had a good harbor. All through this holy Sabbath day, tomorrow morning I have her take warning and pack up her dudes and march away. (laughs) That's the end of chapter one, and next time we'll be reading chapter two, The Training of the Blind. I love you, I'm praying for you, and bye-bye for now.